Church family, let me invite you to take God's Word again and join me in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10 this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Last Sunday, in verses 5 to 8, we saw two truths there at the outset of this section on prayer. A couple of different truths reminding us of what prayer is and what prayer is not. In verses 5 and 6, we saw together that prayer is not self-seeking. We do not seek to our own glory in prayer. We do not pray in order to be seen by others. It's not self-seeking. It cares more, as we'll see this morning, about the glory of God than any glory that we might get for ourselves. And then in verses 7 and 8, we saw together that prayer is also not self-reliant. When we pray, the very nature of praying is communicating to God, I can't, but you can. I don't know, but you do. And so then, our prayer cannot be self-reliant. And so we don't heap up many phrases, many words, meaningless repetition, thinking that somehow that's going to move the heart of God, that He'll see, that He'll notice, that He'll care, and ultimately that He will answer. Our reliance is not on our ability to pray good prayers. Our reliance is upon a good God. And so then, as we consider those realities, and now we move into kind of this larger chunk of Scripture here regarding prayer, we want to be mindful of what we saw last week as it ushers us into these next verses. If there are some prayer pitfalls that we want to avoid, uh, being self-seeking and self-reliant, then we need to be instructed on how to avoid those kinds of prayer pitfalls. And so as your eyes fall on verses 9 to 13, we certainly come to an instructive portion of Scripture on prayer. And as your eyes fall upon verses 9 to 13, your eyes fall upon some of, if not the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. In these verses contain words that are so familiar and so profound that not only do believers know and recognize these words, but they are so profound and well-known that even an unbelieving world recalls the words in these verses. These words have often been called the Lord's Prayer. I want to maybe just briefly suggest to us this morning that maybe a better way to think about or categorize verses 9 to 13 would not so much be the Lord's prayer, but maybe the model prayer. In verses 9 to 13, Jesus is more teaching about prayer than He is actually praying in that moment. Later in the Gospels, in John chapter 17, 
we come to a moment where we might accurately define John 17 as the Lord's Prayer. For it is in that text of Scripture that hours before He will die, Jesus is praying that great high priestly prayer to the Father for various issues, concerns, and needs. But here in verses 9 to 13, what we find from the mouth of our Lord is an instructive grid, if you will, a framework that helps us to rightly think about prayer. And in this grid or in this guide or framework, as Jesus begins to teach us how to pray, we'll see here at the very beginning of this instruction that what Jesus intends for us in prayer is that our prayer would be prayed in a posture of humility before our great God as we commune with Him in this glorious discipline and act of worship called prayer. It is so kind of God that He would instruct us on how to pray. Praying to the sovereign Creator God of all the universe, it can be a daunting task. How do we approach such a glorious, eternal, vast, majestic, sovereign God? If you were to go to meet the King of England, Regardless of what you think about kings or the king of England in particular, you, before that meeting, you would give some thought as to how you might address him. They might would even tell you before you walked in the door, hey, this is how you address the king of England. It can be a daunting task then. How do we think about praying before a great and holy God. Well, God tells us how we can do that. He tells us how to pray in a way that is pleasing unto Him. He tells us how we pray in a way that honors and glorifies Him. I'm praying for us in these verses that the Lord would instill and inflame in us great desires for communion in prayer and that our prayer would mirror what we see here so that God might be glorified and so that our hearts might be drawn closer to God's. Look at the text with me. Let's read all of this text, verses 9-13. to Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for Yours. is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. How do we pray with humility before our great God? I think there are three answers to that question in verses 9 and 10. Here 
is the first answer to that question. How do we pray with humility before our great God? Number one, remember that God is your Father. Remember that God is your Father. How does verse 9 begin? Pray then in this way. So when Jesus says pray then, that serves the same purpose as if you were seeing the word therefore at that spot. In light of what Jesus has previously said about prayer in verses 5-8, through don't pray to be seen by men, and when you pray, let your trust be in God, not in your many words. Pray then, verse 9, in this way. Now, when Jesus says, pray then in this way, what does He mean? Does Jesus mean that the words which follow, that those are to be the words that we pray every time that we pray? Are we allowed to pray other words? Jesus says, pray then in this way. Well, I think we generally know the answer to that question. We will see Jesus throughout the Gospels praying in uh, different places, different times, different ways, and he does not use these exact words in verses 9 to 13. So when Jesus says, pray then in this way, he doesn't necessarily mean pray these specific words. Now, certainly, these words can be used, have been used as prayer. However, one must, I think, be mindful. We must be careful that we do not just mindlessly repeat these words from memory. For if we mindlessly repeat these words from memory, then we fall guilty of what Jesus was speaking about back in verse 7 when he called us to not use meaningless repetition in prayer. You can certainly take these words and pray them back to God But we want to be careful if that is our practice so that we do not fall into this pattern of just mindlessly repeating a prayer like a bedtime prayer for a child or like a mealtime prayer. Just mindlessly repeating words that we're not really thoughtful about. Furthermore, I would call us to maybe just remember this about these words in general. There's nothing magical about these words. These words are not the magic prayer key that somehow unlocks God's love, favor, blessing, or response. These words, even though they be prayed before a sporting event, they do not ensure that God is on your side or that He will grant your team victory. I had a coach one time, always wanted us to say this before uh, every game that we played, and his little tagline was, we can use all the help that we can get. This prayer is not a magic key that unlocks somehow God's heart, God's attention, His love, His blessing. Pray then in this way. It's a framework for us that helps us to think about the way that we pray so that when we pray, we are drawn deeper into the heart and the will of God. So verse 9, pray then in this way. How does this begin? Our Father. I want you to let that wash over you for a second. I know that that's such a familiar start to a familiar section of Scripture, but let that just wash over you for a second. Our Father. 
when we pray, we want to remember that God is our Father. Like we saw last week, God, not others, God is the lone recipient of our prayers. When we pray, we are addressing, we are speaking to and speaking with the first person of the triune Godhead, God the Father. Though our access to God is through Christ and in Christ, and though we have eternal access with God through the sealing work of His Spirit, our prayer is directed to God, our Father. And I also want us to notice here that Jesus in verse 9, He could have chosen any of the titles of God. He could have said, pray then in this way, our glorious provider, our glorious sovereign of all the universe, to the glorious ancient of days. He could have instructed us to address God in a myriad of ways. And they all would have been true. They all would have been right. But notice what Jesus says. Our Father, our Father, throughout Scripture, some of the most comforting places in the Bible are where we see God displayed as a Father to us. Psalm 68 and verse 5, He is a Father to the fatherless. Isaiah 63, 16, For you are our Father. Isaiah 64, verses 8 and 9, But now, O Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay and You are the potter. And all of us are the work of Your hand. Jeremiah 31 and verse 9, God says, I am a Father to Israel. And when we see God in Scripture as a Father, I think there are a couple of broad categories in which we see Him operate in this fatherly way. Number one, we see God operate as a Father, kind of in this broad category of being our Creator. All life is from God the Father. As our Creator, God is the One who has shaped us who has formed us, who has placed us in the womb of our mother. He has put breath in our lungs. We live and we exist. Paul would tell the people of Athens in Acts 17, we live and move and exist in Him. So in the sense where God is Creator, He is our Father. But there's also another aspect of God as our Father. When we see God as our Savior, we are interacting with Him as our Father. He is the One who has saved us from our sins. I have not saved me. You have not saved you. I cannot breathe spiritual life into your spiritual lungs. Only God the Father can do that. Only God can reconcile you to Him. And as we see God as our Savior, we see Him as the One who gives us eternal life. 
John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Church, when we pray, isn't it a glorious comfort to know that you are praying to the Creator who gave you physical life, but even better, you are praying to your Father who gave you spiritual life. And so then what that means is that you are a child of God. You are in a relationship with your heavenly Father. And so when you are lonely, your Father comes near to you in prayer. When you are sin sick and sore, your Father comes near to you in fatherly tender care. When you are beset by enemies, your Father in His protecting power comes to you. When we have great need, your Father provides. When we need wisdom because we don't know what to do, an all-wise Father speaks His wisdom into our hearts. When we grieve, when we groan with sorrow, our comforting Father comes and places His sweet and kind and gracious and merciful hand upon us. When we need loving, yet corrective discipline, our good Father, because He loves us, speaks into our hearts. When we need to be taught and instructed, our Father who knows all things, is our teacher in every possible way. God is your Father. And it is staggering. It is mind-blowing that in all the ways Jesus could have instructed us here about how we think about God in prayer, He calls us to consider in prayer, that God is our Father. He is close. He is near. He sees. He cares. He can do something about our problems. What a sweet and tender way, Christian, for us to relate to God. And so, when you pray, go to God as though He is your Father. Do not approach God as though He is some cold, distant CEO tucked away in the penthouse office not wanting to have anything to do with you. He's your Father. In, in Aramaic, Jesus, the word that Jesus used is, is He is Abba. He's close. He's near. He's so sweet and precious. Trust Him with your prayer. Just as you would trust a good earthly father, trust God with your prayer. Trust God with your fears. Trust Him with your anxieties. Trust Him with your cares. Listen, God knows you got fears. God knows that there are things that you don't know. And He doesn't deride you for those things. 
if our children come to us and they ask a question just simply because they're trying to gather information, because they don't know, because they're not old enough to know, because they've never dealt with this before, we don't look at our children and say, man, what's wrong with you? How can you not know that? We sit with them. We tenderly instruct and guide them. Beloved, go to God in that way. God's not put off by you. He's not put off when you don't have the answers. Trust Him. Love Him. Love Him. He loves you. He loved you first. He loved you when you were still His enemy. He saved you. Love Him. Don't run away from Him. Don't let your sin and the failings cause you to run away from God even in your sin. He loves you. So pray to Him as your Father. Is God your Father today? Listen, every human being on the planet is made in God's image. Every human being is God's priceless creation. Every human being has eternal value and worth. But not every human being is God's child. There is a difference. We become God's child by faith in Christ. That's how we gain access into the family of God. Do you know Christ? Are you a child of God? If not, you must be born again today. You must. You cannot wait until tomorrow because you might not get tomorrow. You must come to faith in Christ today. You must turn away from your sin and cling to Jesus who died to set His people free. Do you know Him as your Father? When you pray, Remember that God is your Father. And secondly, when you pray, revere God's glorious name. How do we pray with humility before our great God? And I'm framing it that way because as we'll now begin to see, I think that's the big point to which Jesus is driving. We want to pray with humility to our great God. So when we pray, how do we do that? Secondly, revere God's name. Verse 9, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. In Scripture, it's often that we see heaven described as the place where God dwells. The place from which God rules and reigns. We see heaven described as the abode of the throne of God. Isaiah 66 and verse 1. Heaven is my throne, God says. Psalm chapter 11 and verse 4. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So I want you to follow this with me then. If God's throne is in heaven, and if it is from that heavenly throne that God rules and reigns, 
then the phrase in verse 9, who is in heaven, is not merely a phrase declaring where God is. It is a phrase declaring who God is. It is a phrase that denotes God's absolute sovereign rule and reign over everything. His throne is in the heavens and the earth is His footstool. Therefore, He is sovereign God over all creation. God is too big. God is too glorious. He is too eternal to be bound in a single location. So then, who is in heaven is speaking about God's power to rule and His sovereign right to reign. And if you don't understand anything else about God, please understand this. That God is in absolute sovereign total control and has the absolute rights over all things. It is from His powerful eternal throne that our good and loving Father watches over and orders the events of our lives and of all the world. If your throne is in heaven and all the earth is your footstool, then you get to be in absolute sovereign control over everything. If in the beginning, God, then you get to lay claim to absolute sovereignty and control. Genesis 1.1 is not merely telling you how how the world came to be. It's telling you something about God. That in the beginning, when there was nothing else, there was sovereign God. And that then forms our understanding of God all throughout Scripture. And certainly in this moment, pray then our Father who is in heaven. So then, if that's true, that God is our Father, He is our loving and good Father, if it is true that our prayer rises to the ear of the Sovereign of the ages, then look further in verse 9, hallowed be Your name. This is who God is, beginning of verse 9, then this is how we should think about and approach God in prayer. At the end of verse 9, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed there. The Greek word, uh, Greek word is agiatso. It's a word that you see often throughout Scripture. The meaning of that word is to sanctify or to make holy. God's name, as we're thinking about it in verse 9 then, is sanctified. It is holy. It is set apart from all other names. There is no other name like God's name. God's name is entirely other than. It is entirely different. Because God's name means the very essence and nature and character of all that He is completely, entirely, and utterly sanctified and set apart. When we talk about the name of God, it's not just a title. We're talking about the sum essence of all that God is beginning and ending with His holiness. Hallowed be your name. Holy 
be your name. Sanctified, set apart, different, other than be your name. There's no other name like the name of God. You remember Exodus chapter 3? Burning bush, Moses. I want you to go back to Egypt, get my people out. Moses' response is a pretty good one. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm going to go stand before the most powerful person on the planet. Uh, I'm going to go stand before the elders of Israel who've been doing this for about 400 years. They're going to have some questions, namely, who sent you? Who sent you, Moses, to get us out of Egypt? What name do I give them? You remember what God says? This is a stunning response. You tell them, Moses, that I am who I am sent you. Who gets to say that, by the way? If you meet somebody out on the street, hey, what's your name? And you tell them, I am. They're going to look at you like you have five heads. And rightly so. Who gets to say in response to what's your name, I am? I am the first and I am the last. I am the sovereign of all the ages. I am a holy God. I am completely different and other than. There is no other name like God. So then, when we pray, when we address God, when we speak to the sovereign God who is in heaven, it matters, church. It matters how we speak to Him. It matters how we engage Him in prayer. It matters that we hallow His name. How do we do that? How do we hallow God's name? I think it is just simply this, that when we pray, no matter if what comes out of your mouth are the deep theological thankfulness of your heart, or whether it is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. No matter what that prayer is, when we pray, we want to show complete honor, complete reverence, and complete respect to God. We are to give care, thoughtful care, as to how we address God's name. How we think about God. How we speak to God in prayer. Though our prayers be sometimes tearful, though they be sometimes fearful, though they be sometimes doubting, though our prayers be sometimes laced with anxieties, cares, and questions, though our prayers sometimes rise to God with great joy, peace, and contentment, they are all to hallow His name. To show right reverence, honor, and respect because God is not like us. God's not like us. He is our Father. He loves and cares for us. He's come near to us. But beloved, never make the mistake of thinking that God is like us. For He is not. So when we pray, we're not flippant. We're not irreverent in how we pray from our hearts. God is not our buddy. God is not our bro. He's not our homeboy. God's not the big man upstairs or the big guy. His name is I am 
who I am, and it matters how we talk to God. It matters that our hearts be in awe of who He is and what He is like. For He is the holy Preexistent, self-sufficient, creator, sustainer, eternal, sovereign God of the universe. Your prayer, hear me, it does not have to be full of deep theological references, but your heart needs to be full of deep reverence unto God. It matters how we talk to Him. The Puritan, excuse me, the Puritan Thomas Watson said this, In this petition, hallowed be Your name, we pray that God's name may shine forth gloriously, that it may be honored and sanctified by us in the whole course and tenor of our lives. To speak vainly or slightly of God is profaning His name and taking His name in vain. Beloved, when we pray, we do not seek our own glory. We seek the glory of God. We don't seek to make much of our name. We seek to make much of His name. Hallowed, holy is Your name. How do we pray with humility before our great God? Remember that God is Your Father. Revere His great name. And thirdly, relinquish Your kingdom and Your will. Here we come, full kind of full picture, full circle here, praying with humility before our great God. Verse 10, pray then this way, your, your God, kingdom come, your will be done. Notice what's absent. My kingdom come. My will be done. That's absent. Your kingdom, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we believe that God is our Father. That He's formed us and shaped us in our mother's womb. He gave us life. If we believe that He is our Father and has breathed the breath of His Spirit to fill our spiritual lungs, to give us eternal life, to save us from our sins, if we believe that God is holy other than glorious, majestic, mighty, and sovereign, then our prayer should be marked by verse 10. How how can we believe verse 9 to be true? And then still have as the desire of our heart, my kingdom come, my will be done. If we end up there, we need to go back and read verse 9 again. And again and again until we come face to face with God. For when we come face to face with God, our response will be a lot more like that of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm a dead man. For I have seen the Lord of hosts. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. There's nothing about Isaiah in that moment that's strutting about the room. I have seen the Lord of hosts. Look at me. There's no room for self in light of who God is in verse 9. 
So if we believe that God is our Father, holy and set apart, that He rules from heaven, then our prayer must be marked by a humble desire that says, not my kingdom come, but Your kingdom come. Not my will be done, but Your will be done. When we read here in verse 10, God's kingdom, what does that mean? It's a long conversation, but very simply, God's kingdom there's a sense where it is already at work. It is already here and among us. When Christ comes the very first time, what is said about Him and His coming? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ has come as the King of that kingdom. And so God's kingdom then is the righteous rule and reign in the hearts of His people the church. It is the advancement of the Gospel throughout the world through the conduit of the local church. But there is also a sense of it's already started, but it's not yet completed. Not yet what it will be. So God's kingdom is also the future eternal reign of God over all His redeemed people and over all His redeemed creation. Christ comes the first time the kingdom begins. It is inaugurated. Christ will come again and God's kingdom will be consummated at the end of the age. So our prayer then should be what? God, Your kingdom come. God, my prayer is that Your Gospel goes out into the world and that it saves men and women and boys and girls. That Your kingdom come. My prayer then becomes, oh God, send Jesus back. Oh God, hasten the day. We should have a burning desire in our hearts for God's kingdom to come. For it to be advanced now through the spread of the Gospel, the work of the church, your own gifts and talents and abilities. And we should also be praying for the return of Christ. When the full and final expression of God's kingdom finally comes. Is that your burning passion and desire? That God's kingdom would come. Martin Luther said this, I have two days on my calendar. This day and that day. Is that the burning passion of your soul? That God's kingdom would come. He also says that Your will would be done. God, Your will be done. The entirety of our lives and the desire of our every prayer should be, God, Your will be done. God's wants, God's desires, God's will should be ours. And when we pray... We are to posture ourselves in humility so that my kingdom crumbles. What I want in and of myself for my own selfish desires, that that dissipates and that God's kingdom comes and His will is done. This is the very heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. Do you remember the times in John's Gospel? John 4.34, John 5.30, John 6.38. In all those places, Jesus is essentially saying the same thing. I did not come to do my own will. I came to do the will of Him who sent me. Do you remember the cry, the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane? 
God, if we can do this any other way, let's do that. God, if this cup can pass from me, then let's let that thing pass from me. But then almost you get the sense without even taking a breath, yet not my will, but your will be done. And there we find what it is to submit ourselves to the kingdom and the will of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayer should be that across the whole earth, God's purposes should be accomplished, whatever that purpose might be. Our prayer should be that just as God's will is done in heaven, just as His angelic messengers do His will, just as in, every, just as in everything in heaven submits to Him, our prayer should be that the whole earth humbly submits to Him. Listen, don't be confused about the cultural confusion. At the root of everything that we're dealing with culturally right now is the simple reality of I don't want God's kingdom to come and I don't want God's will to be done. I want my kingdom to come and I want my will to be done. It is a desire and a demand to not submit to anybody's authority, not even God's. So then, church, it should be that our prayer, at the heart of every prayer, no matter how it comes out of our mouths, is God, Your will be done in my life. It is impossible, by the way, to pray It's impossible to pray Your kingdom come, Your will be done when we're consumed with our own kingdom and the exercising of our own will. So beloved, we're going to have to die. For you have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So church, the call here is to walk humbly before God in submission to His sovereign rule and reign. Ask yourself this question, church. Are you okay with God telling you no? Are you okay with God telling you no if it means that His kingdom advanced and His will is done in your life? The answer to that question will diagnose precisely where your heart is before the Lord. Is it okay for God to tell you no when you pray for that thing if it means that His kingdom is advanced and His will for your life is accomplished. Church, look at verse 9 and 10 again. Have you noticed that in the first two verses of this model prayer, have you noticed that you and I, we haven't even entered the equation. We're nowhere to be found. Now, don't be discouraged. Just hang on, All right. Because we'll come in the next couple weeks to asking God for our needs. Bringing our petitions before Him. God delights in that. Calls us to that. Wants us to do that. But our prayer begins with humility before our great God. It recognizes chiefly, first and foremost, the One to whom we're praying, our Father. Our prayer 
It seeks to revere God's great and holy name. And before we even ask God for our own needs, petitions, and requests, good though they be, the call is to posture our hearts in humility. God, Your will be done. I'm going to ask these things, God. I'm going to ask that this cup be removed from me. But at the end of the day, God, what I care most about is Your kingdom, Your glory, and Your will being done in my life. I think, beloved, this is how we pray in a way that pleases God. I think that this is how we pray with humility before our great God. You know, we're about to transition to receive Lord's Supper together. What a glorious reminder of all that God is and all that God has done. And so maybe as we receive the Lord's Supper together this morning, maybe one of the things that we can think about and just meditate on for a few minutes is the greatness of God to love me when I was unlovable, to show grace and mercy when it was not deserved or earned, to give us Christ, and that through Him, We are God's children. Let's pray together. Father, so very much to think about in these verses. God, before us is Your character, Your name, Your kingdom, Your will. God, calls Your Word to intersect now with our hearts. We, we come to take into our hands the bread and the cup. These visible reminders of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed for us, Your children. God, there's no way that we could be haughty with the bread and the cup in our hands. God, there's no way that we can remember the Gospel And somehow desire that our kingdom come and that our will be done. So God, just work into our hearts in these moments. Glorious humility. Thankful humility. God, help us to just rightly respond to You. How we pray. God, glorify Yourself in us. We ask it in Christ's great name. Amen.